The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. It is almost the end of June. My goodness, where does the time go? Even when we're holed up in the basement, stuck in the Jack Wilson studio, buried deep underground, the time just zips by. It's almost the end of the month, which means it's almost time for the little Patreon-only content that should go up soon for all you Patreon subscribers over there at patreon.com slash literature. We have a great show today. We're taking a look at an amazing story, Dr. Zhivago, by Boris Pasternak, one of Russia's greatest poets, one of its great historical figures, one of its Cold War heroes, a great lover, a brave writer, a punished writer, taking on a regime, and one of those times when writers are front and center on the world stage. Often they are not. Often Poets and novelists are ignored. Who cares? Nobody reads. That's what I imagine world leaders saying. Like that quote that's attributed to Napoleon. Ah, the Pope? How many armies does he have? (laughs) He objects. How many armies does he have? That's what I imagine world leaders saying about writers sometimes. A nonfiction book, maybe we'll try to block that. A book by an insider, a relative, a former aide, that might be embarrassing or reveal some secrets. But a novel? Eh, who cares? That's how things are some of the time in history. Other times in history, at other moments, poets and novelists and filmmakers are extremely important. Viewed as dangerous. So dangerous, they might be censored. They might be locked up. They might be exiled or imprisoned. There's two important things to think about here, I think. The first is that part of this, part of what goes into the state's response to a poet or a novelist, is how the public reacts to novels and poetry. If the public respects writers, believes in them, values them, looks to them for wisdom or answers, then it's more likely that those writers will be suppressed. Right? That stands to reason. If you're trying to stay in power by manipulating the thoughts of the people, You want to know who else has that power. You want to know who your rivals are. Who might the people listen to other than me? My political opponent? Well, let's crush them. Journalists? Let's censor them. Who's left? Poets? Novelists? Well, how much do our people actually listen to them? And in Russia in the 30s and 40s and 50s, the answer was the people would listen to them. There was a great tradition of literature coming out of the 19th century especially, Russians, I mean, it's like tea in London or cheese in France. It's the Leaning Tower of Pisa in Italy, the Opera House in Sydney. What do you associate with Russia if you are living there in 1930? What forms their identity? Tolstoy, Dostoevsky. That's what they're proud of. That's what they know. That's who they are. We are very good at novels. And here comes a poet, a famous poet, so famous that people go to watch him in big concert halls and recite the lines of his poetry before he can. He writes a book, a novel. What will the state do? The Stalinist 
totalitarian regime. Release it to the public or crack down hard. And here's where we get to the second part. Second interesting thing to me, what is the crackdown for? Is it just looking at influencing the public? Who has influence on the public? What rival ideas might be out there? Or is it also saying we can permit some things, but we can't permit anyone to be a threat to us. We can't permit anyone to have a say, to be independent in any way. I'm not just talking about criticism of the regime here. I'm talking about any kind of independent thinking. When the totalitarian regime says we have to be the only source of knowledge, the only wisdom permitted. If that's the case, then it's better to err on the side of censorship because that will send a message. Be on board with us, with our propaganda, or your message, your art, whatever it is you're calling it, that won't get out. We will crack down. And here comes America. America says, hey, we're over here, Russians. We have this thing called the CIA. We spy. We maneuver. We undermine. You say you're for the people. Well, are you really? You're a totalitarian regime. Maybe the people should see that more clearly. Maybe they're not getting the news they should because you've suppressed it. You suppress all dissent and you keep people in line that way, well, maybe we can expose that. So, the novel gets written, Dr. Zhivago, the novel gets suppressed, the CIA gets involved. What a story. Laura Prescott is here to take us through it. She's written a book about it called The Secrets We Kept. How did the great Russian poet of the 20th century, a poet of love, himself a great and passionate lover, wind up being in this international geopolitical tug-of-war. Lara's book talks about that and also about the CIA employees and their role, the women who worked there, what they did. It's a novel, a thriller with two sides, Russia and America, what's happening in Russia and what's happening in America. But of course, those two superpowers were really just one coin in the Cold War, weren't they? Two superpowers locked in a tense embrace. The coin flipping over and over and over, one on one side, one on the other. It's a fun conversation, a fascinating subject. We will have her join us in a moment. But first, let's take a quick break, hear from a few listeners, then dive deep into Dr. Zhivago. Grownups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. 
The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Did you recognize that music, by the way? It's Lara's theme, which is not in honor of Lara Prescott, although it could be. <laughs> I wonder if she made that connection. No, this is one of my mom's favorite songs of all time. Maybe her favorite song of all time, unless her favorite song is Bolero, which she and her college roommate used to hear every morning as their neighbor. This was in an all-girls dorm at the University of Wisconsin. Their neighbor used to crank Bolero every morning on her record player and smoke a cigar. <laughs> my goodness. So, Lara's theme might be my mom's favorite song, unless it's Bolero or unless it's Amazing Grace. Silent Night by, might be in there, too. You Are My Sunshine. West Side Story, another one of her favorites. So, Lara's theme from Dr. Zhivago, the film, a great David Lean movie with Omar Sharif and Julie Christie, an epic, sweeping epic, two gorgeous movie stars in a gorgeous movie. It's not Lawrence of Arabia, but it'll do. So, first email is from Alex. Subject, fan mail. Hey there, Jack. I think I have become addicted to your podcast, so I just wanted to show some love and say thank you for what you do. There's always been a spark lit inside me in regards to reading, and it grows and dies along with my schoolwork and how I'm feeling, but it's as if you've dumped a gallon of gasoline on that spark. There is something unexplainable about what restoring the love for reading means to me, as it is for many others. Listeners, I am sure, can hear it in your enthusiasm when you are speaking about literature. And in a culture of non-readers, I'm overjoyed to have found your podcast, where I get to sit back and relax with not only a short story, but an entire deep and profound conversation about what has been read. Anyways, I have a feeling, you with your algorithms and charts, that you have a counter system for ideas on podcasts or authors, so I'll toss in my chips here. Don DeLillo, Dennis Johnson, Jesse Ball. Long shot, I know, but I'm tossing in my chip. Maybe this will end up in a contemporaries episode. In that case, Otessa Moshfeg, too. My favorite episodes are your reviews of short stories with Mike. I also really enjoy your top 10 books not to read, your critique of the top 101 books, and your episode on writing programs. I just got accepted to attend a BFA in creative writing and was going to throw in the idea of you and Mike getting together to talk about a top 10 literary stylist list or some list that you would want to hand every newlywed BFA attendant. Also, a huge thanks to Mike, especially for sticking up for DFW. Gratitude and thanks, Alex. Well, 
Thank you, Alex, and good luck to you at the BFA program. Always great to have another soldier in the literature army. A gallon of gasoline. <laughs> That's kind of what we're doing here, right? We're kind of clumsy and oafish. Here's a spark. I see one over there. Well, here I come with my gallon of gasoline. Poor, poor, poor. Glub, glub, glub. Swoosh. Flame. Explosion. Oh, crap. <laughs> hey, hey, goodbye. <laughs> Sirens. It's the podcaster life in a nutshell. I hope the flames provide some light and some warmth and not the sense of uncontrolled and unnecessary destruction. Hmm. Next up, listener Mary weighs in. Subject, Ontario calling. Oh, boy. It's a great subject line. Best subject line, I think, just imagining one here, would be, I love your podcast. No. No, I'm even more egotistical than that. I can go further down in the mud. Best subject line, I love you. <laughs> How good is that? Write that one, people. I will open it. I love you. I'm just kidding. Best subject line, of course, has to be Brazilian friend. That one stands out. That's my favorite. But Ontario calling is pretty good, too. I like Ontario. I like the idea that they're calling. Subject, Ontario calling. Hello, Jack. It is a beautiful June day in Ontario, and I have just popped a rhubarb pie in the oven. And while making it, I listened to the podcast on Steinbeck. I remember a book report I submitted in grade five on the book, The Pearl. What an impact that book had on my nine-year-old self, and I am sure it thrust me headlong into a life of great reads and a touch of melancholy. I studied art and Thomistic philosophy and became a teacher. I recently retired. I've been listening to your podcast for several months and have signed on as a legit member. Often, I listen as I paint. I am an iconographer and paint icons in a deeply traditional method. You may think of these as religious images or archetypes, for they are not unlike each other. The technique is ancient, natural mineral pigments bound by egg yolk, water, and a little vodka for preservation, gold leaf on a chalk and marble dust gessoed board. They take months to complete, and your podcast is high on my list of podcasts to which I listen as I paint. I am working on two commissions, St. Cecilia and John the Baptist. How I enjoyed your reading of Alice Munro's short story, The Love of a Good Woman. I hope you continue to insert more readings. Such a pleasure. I live about a 30-minute drive from Alice Munro country in Ontario and often pass through her town on my way to the beautiful beaches of Lake Huron. I was so happy to hear during the C.S. Lewis podcast that he was a fan of Beatrix Potter. She is one of my favorite authors. What better line is there than the following? Cottontail, cottontail, fetch me some more chamomile. <laughs> or, the water was all slippy sloppy in the larder. Especially when read aloud with your best attempt at a Cotswold accent. Well, this is me, Jack. I didn't even try that. I hope Wisconsin via Chicago, via Bologna, via Taiwan and D.C. and Ann Arbor and Seattle and Silicon Valley and New York City and Michigan again and D.C. again. Well, I hope that worked for you. That accent, whatever this is, the Jack Wilson special. Back to the email. During COVID isolation, I illustrated and stenciled a hallway in my home with kittens, rabbits, birds, mice, squirrels, 
chipmunks, and butterflies scuttling about in gardens in honor of Beatrix Potter's exquisite artwork. Which leads me to suggest perhaps an episode or two on children's literature. Why not? Great literature is great literature. Such authors as Madeline Langle, Frances Hodgson's Burnett, Beverly Cleary, Judy Bloom, George MacDonald, Lucy Maud Montgomery, Louisa May Alcott, and many others. I'm sure you can add to the list. Think about it. Love the podcast and your banter with Mike. May I be so bold to ask you to consider Willa Cather and Rumor Godden? Wow. That's from Mary. That's her name? Mary? Did I say that already? Listener Mary. Yes, of course. Ontario has called. What a great email. What a fascinating life Mary is living up there in Ontario. I just can't get over how many people work in studios. We had our woman in Australia making mugs. We have farmers in the fields. And now we have Mary who is painting away. Sounds almost monastic. Such a contemplative but tranquil life. Full of patience. I'm glad to be a part of it. This in this weird voice-only way. Voice, brain, and heart. I'm sending it all there to Ontario to join Mary in the studio. Some great suggestions, by the way. I would do an episode on any of those children's authors. It's a great idea. Maybe we need to do a top 10 on children's authors. That'd be fun, too. I need to find the right guest to explore children's authors with. Maybe that's the trick. You're not the first who's asked about uh, episode on children's authors, or you're not the first to ask about Willa Cather. It's another good choice. Rumor Godden would be interesting to take a look at, kind of like Enid Blyton and Tovey Jansen. Oh, we're not going to run out of topics here, are we? Even as we steam toward three million downloads, I haven't celebrated the two millionth download yet. I'm sort of saving that, but we did cross that threshold and we're headed toward three million. We should get there soon. The little podcast that could. But if I say so myself. But speaking of millions, there were millions of Russians waiting for this novel by Boris Pasternak. How did you like that segue? Maybe we should... Maybe we should wait. Let's cut the music. Let's give a little credit to the intern who came up with that segue. Nice job, intern. What's your face? Those are the interns we currently have running around the Jack Wilson studio. We have What's Your Face, we have Who's Your Daddy, and we have How'd You Get This Job. My producer, Gar, names them all. Hey, how'd you get this job? Can you cue up the music? Actually, he's not here, is he? He quit the other day. It was kind of poignant. I mean, I, I felt bad. His real name was Bob, which is pretty simple, easy to remember. Not at all hard to say. And for months... Following Gar's lead, we all called him, How'd you get this job? And every time we said it, his lower lip would stick out and then it would start to tremble. And we'd say, Oh, we're sorry. We're sorry. We value your contributions. It's just that your name is, well, it's kind of hard to remember. And he would say, My name is Bob. And we would say, Oh, right, 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 Bob. Sorry. It's, it's not that it's hard to remember. It's just a little hard to pronounce. And he would say, it's pronounced Bob. Well, what can you say to that? It was very cruel. Nicknames are cruel. 
the mark of a bully, and we were all falling into it until one day we came in and there was a note on the desk, a nice, neat note, folded in half, a really good job folding that note. I mean, the guy was actually really competent. You could see it just in the note he wrote and the care with which he folded it. He did excellent work. I could sense something in this paper as I picked it up. Some emotion had gone into it. I unfolded it, my heart pounding, and there it was, written in black marker. The words were simple, but they went straight through me and made me shiver. He was quitting. He had gone. And all we had was this paper. And on the paper it said, How'd you get this job out? A classic resignation letter. He accepted who he wanted him to be, and then he rejected it with great finality. A little behind-the-scenes look at what goes on here at the Jack Wilson Studios. It's not always pretty, folks. We will be back with Lara Prescott after this. Okay, joining me now is Lara Prescott, whose debut novel, The Secrets We Kept, has been translated into 30 languages and is selling like wildfire all over the world. She's here to tell us about the stories behind the story, the true life love story that fed into Boris Pasternak's famous 20th century classic, Dr. Zhivago, and the CIA's plot to use a novel to help the United States win the Cold War. Lara Prescott, welcome to the History of Literature. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So let's start with the history before we get to your work. Who mm-hmm. was Boris Pasternak? Boris Pasternak um, was known for being one of the most famous living writers in Russia and the Soviet Union during his time. He was primarily known to be a poet mm-hmm. and he was so famous that people, um, no matter where they were, or what station they were in life, had memorized his poetry, he would sell out these giant auditoriums just packed to the brim with people who would become so overcome with emotion when hearing him read his poetry that they would start shouting out the lines before he could even finish them. He was kind of a rock star, I would Mm. would say. Um, And this is all before um, he wrote his first and only novel, Dr. Zhivago. Um, He was kind of known to be an intellectual. Um, His first love was music. And he dreamed of becoming a composer and Mm. even studied in Europe um, to become a composer, but thought that he would never rise to the heights that he had set out for himself in music and shortly turned to poetry, um, which is where he really had a footing on. And, And, you know, his father was a famous impressionist painter. His mother was a pianist. He came from a very intellectual, very artistic family. Um, And, And so he was one of these writers that was constantly up for um, the Nobel Prize. His name would always be mentioned Mm. every year. For his poetry. 
Yeah, for his poetry. Um, it just resonated so much with people. And he really considered um, his poetry to kind of be leading him up to writing his masterpiece, which would be this novel that he mm. worked on for uh, you know close to a decade. And that right. was Dr. Chicago. Okay, so let's uh, let's yeah. <laughs> orient this in time a little bit. So he was born in 1890, and yes. he's influential as a poet in the 1920s, and he's living through the Russian Revolution, and somehow he's able to uh, avoid the fate of many other writers, even though my understanding is he did have some dissension and, and some, he kind of refused to fall in with Stalin, who spared his life at one point. Absolutely. Um, he saw his friends, his peers, his neighbors, even his next door neighbor, uh, dragged out in the streets, mm. uh, disappeared, sentenced to the gulag um, or, you know, succumbing to their own tragic ends um, due to the pressure of the state. And this was this was just a common occurrence where it became almost unusual that Boris Pasternak was spared by the hand of Stalin, which so many people had died during the purges. And it was believed that Stalin had spared him for a number of reasons. And the first and foremost reason was that he was actually a fan of Boris Pasternak's poetry. Mm, Yeah. And and I think that's something that Boris had struggled with of knowing that, you know, this person is a fan of my poetry. And what does that mean? Um, Mm. And what words mean once they're put out there and people can connect with them in any way that they see fit? Um, But, you know, Pasternak wrote about Georgia and Stalin was from Georgia. And so he really respected his work. But he also thought Boris to be what he called a cloud dweller or a holy fool. (laughs) Yeah, I heard that, that that the the story is that he his name was on an execution list and Stalin crossed it off and said either do not touch this cloud dweller or leave that holy fool alone. I didn't realize it was because he actually uh, may have enjoyed his poetry. That that was definitely part of it. Um, And he he thought, you know, as a holy fool, he thought he was touched by the gods and Mm. might say outrageous things that could be um, construed as as um, subversive sometimes, but he was totally harmless. He was, you know, he had his head in the clouds, and that was the excuse that he gave, or supposedly gave, when he struck his name from his his purge list. Um, but even though he was spared largely, um, once he began writing Doctor Zhivago, it soon perked the attention of the state, and mm. they very much wanted to get their hands on this novel, knowing um, that it could contain anti-Soviet content. Right. And, he had, you know, you know, the state had eyes and ears everywhere. But Boris was one of these writers who certainly wasn't keeping his work until it was finished and then unleashing it to the world. He was the kind of writer who's very much unlike myself. He would write something and then have a little literary salon and read it mm, <laughs> a week right. later to see what people thought. So he was holding these, you know, little readings all over um, Moscow. And people soon realized that, you know, what he was writing could be deemed subversive. Mm. And so while Boris, you know, he enjoyed um, such perks as having a DACA in the country um, that was provided by the state and and all of these other luxuries that were unheard of during the time, um, the state still wanted to pressure him. And so they used his mistress and his muse, uh, Olga Ivanskaya, to do so. Okay, so let's talk about her. Uh, who was Olga Ivanskaya, and uh, what was her relationship to this story? 
Yeah, so Olga is a, a very fascinating woman to me. Um, she, in her own right, she was a, a translator and a poet, um, and she worked for uh, literary magazines in Moscow, and she had been married twice before both of her husbands had died. She had two children, and she was about 20 years younger than Boris when they met, and they mm-hmm. met um, at her place of work, which was this literary magazine. And Boris, of course, was married, um, and he stayed married to his second wife, Zineda, um, while he met Olga. But he quickly fell in love with her, mm. and they had this very tumultuous love affair almost from the beginning. And throughout that time, you know, they would have on and off again fights of, you know, leave the wife, don't leave the wife. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's very passionate. And she was fulfilling um, almost this muse type role for him where Olga goes on to inspire the character of Lara in Dr. Zhivago, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting because when he first started writing this character of Lara, the, the original um, muse was his wife, Zaneda. Um, but when he met Olga, he certainly kind of changed pace. And, and this character of Lara is very much modeled after her. Right. And, you know, so he's writing his novel, Dr. Zhivago. He's doing these readings. He's having this affair with Olga. And Olga is arrested. Mm. <laughs> Olga is arrested by state authorities and basically interrogated and threatened to give up Boris and, and say that he's writing something anti-Soviet and, and tell us what they're writing. But she refused to do so. And as a result, she was sentenced to five years of hard labor in the gulag. Mm. Um, and she, and during her interrogation, she miscarried um, the child she was pregnant with, with Boris. Uh, right. And so Stalin's still in power at this point. And, and the only reason Olga gets out a little bit early after, um, you know, working the fields and she gets out after three years is because Stalin dies and thousands of political prisoners are released um, shortly after that. And she was one of them, Hmm. Um, but she goes right back to Boris. (laughs) Um, She stands by him and he continues to write Dr. Zhivago. Yeah. And that's when he kind of wrapped it up, right? Because I've got the timeline, right? So Stalin died in 1953 She's Mm -hmm. released, and then he, although he had been working on Dr. Zhivago since the 1910s, uh, he finished it in 1956. Yes, yeah. So, yeah, he started writing some of the poems that come at the end of Dr. Zhivago. Um, For those of you who have read it, it ends with a series of poems. Mm, I can hear Um, the thunder. At your I place. Know. I think it's a, very, <laughs> very appropriate very here. Yeah. Talk about uh, the, the gulag. If and only we could, I guess that's the, the next best thing to snow would be the, uh, <laughs> the only thing very, better. It's <laughs> very dark here today in Austin. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm sorry. I just lost my train. Um, so he had started writing some of the poems you said in yes. early, like the 1910s and 20s. Exactly. Um, and but and he started working on the novel in earnest. And, and I think it really did ramp up, like you said, after Olga was released um, from from prison. And I think he thought at the time that there could be um, a way for his novel to get published, because as he's writing this novel, he goes back and forth between believing it's going to be published or mm. able to published or not. So sometimes yeah. he would say this this book will basically never leave the uh, see the light of day and other times he thought maybe this is the time. And so when Stalin dies he thinks okay, maybe we'll be able to write what we want. Maybe we'll be able to to publish in this thaw as they right. call it. 
Right. Um, and so okay. he had a renewed hope and a renewed urgency to finish, and he finished in 1956. Right. So before we talk about the uh, the way that the book makes it out, which is a fascinating story, let's talk a little bit about the book itself for those who haven't read uh, Dr. Zhivago. Uh, what kind of book is it, and, and how would you describe it? What's it about? Sure. So it's it's interesting to think about Dr. Zhivago as almost a historical novel. Yeah. Um, you know, Boris, yeah, as a sprawling, it's one of these great Russian novels um, in the tradition of, of a Tolstoy story where we have a hundred different characters with a hundred different names. Yeah. <laughs> and if if many Americans are really familiar with the the David Lean film yeah. that came out in 1965. And if you've only seen the film, you think, okay, this is a, a romance. This is about these two characters, Yuri and Lara. Mm-hmm. And certainly, these are the two main protagonists of, of Boris Pasternak's Yuri Zhivago, very much being modeled after himself. Yeah. And like I said before, Lara being modeled after Olga. And they're having, um, there's, they're, they fall in love, and Yuri's married, and there's, there's a struggle between who he should be with the very level-headed... Tanya or the passionate Lara. Um, But this all takes place between, you know, the Russian Revolution. Um, It goes through the civil wars that commenced after that and and up to World War II. And you see a number of years in how, uh, you know, Russia turns to the Soviet Union and its effect on citizens. And what makes this novel so interesting is the characters themselves have different reactions to these events. Mm. It's not so much that he's saying what happened was bad and look at this horrific aftermath. He is very much saying that the revolution positively affected these people, negatively affected these people. Um, there was a mix, you know, Yuri is a perfect mix of the two of, you know, having hope during the revolution and then seeing some of the negative effects of the aftermath. And so it wasn't so much that he was deeming it as something tragic or bad that had happened as much as that he showed that individuals could have different opinions on it and have different experiences, which in itself went against the collective thought. That's what made it subversive. This is not, you know, having an opinion is not, um, (laughs) is, is not uh, falling in line with what the state wanted its citizens to believe. And so by modern, standards, it doesn't seem very subversive. This love story, you know, ta- taking you know this historical picture that, that, you know, takes you all over the Soviet Union and snow and trains and all these things. Yeah. Um, it, but does, it, it does yeah. seem like the, the censors, it shows how the censors were a little paranoid, uh, a little suffering from a bit of paranoia. And they had their, their censorship dial turned up too high. I, I read that Khrushchev, after he left power, he actually read the novel and regretted that he had ever banned the book. You know, they're saying that they, they, they saw subtle criticisms and things like that, which it really mm-hmm. does say more about they're worried that if they open the door to having a difference of opinion, as you say, it could open the door to more criticism than was actually in the book. Exactly. And I think the fear was heightened so much because he was such a famous writer. And, you know, this was a, a he was writing this the first novel, everyone would want to read it. Mm-hmm. And so I think, like you said, their radar was higher. And it is a funny story when he when Kirchhoff was reading it years later, and he said, Why did we buy this novel? Was that worth all the trouble that it cost? us?" <laughs> right. So let's talk about <laughs> that. 
somehow, so how did it make it past the Soviet censors? Why was it not just uh, destroyed and, and burned and, and shredded? Uh, how yeah. did it make it out? So what happened? So after Pasternak finishes in 1956, the process is that one would submit it to the state publishers because in the Soviet Union during that time, you had to be published in the Soviet Union first by the state publishers before it could ever go international. Hmm. Um, and so it was against the law to do so. What happened is he sent his novel off and he didn't receive any word back. And, you know, this would be as if Today, you know, a Stephen King sent his his next novel off and never heard from his publisher if they wanted to publish it or, or you know, something <laughs> like that. It just it just wouldn't happen. Right. This is, <laughs> he just it was radio silence. And he certain he certainly started to pick up that this was too subversive. It's not going to be published. Right. It's, and not that, that, uh, <laughs> it's not that Boris Pasternak's long awaited novel was buried at <laughs> the bottom of some slush pile or something. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, I think they can assume they read this, this novel right away. And when um, he started figuring out this is months are passing. No, no word. Mm. He has a visitor um, from an Italian man <laughs> Yeah. And his name is Sergio D'Angelo. And Sergio D'Angelo had been working at Radio Moscow. Um, he was also a member of the Italian Communist Party. And he was working at Radio Moscow doing, um, you know, translations and various work. But at the same time, he was uh, also an agent of some sorts for an Italian publisher by the name of Gian Giacomo Feltrinelli. Right. And Gian Giacomo Feltrinelli is a fascinating character worth his own novel. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, but he was one of the richest men in Italy. Um, his family had a timber fortune. And one of the things he wanted to do is to have a publishing company. And he was really in love with literature. And he starts this new publishing company and he's looking for talent. He wants the next Lolita. He wants the next Russian masterpiece. And mm. so he has Sergio kind of scouting, keeping his ear to the ground, thinking, where's the next novel coming from? So that Feltrinelli could secure the Italian rights. You know, right. he, this was the original attention. And so Sergio heads out to Pasternak's Dhaka, um, which is, a you know, about a 20, 20 miles away from Moscow. And he doesn't have an appointment. He just shows up and he he meets Pasternak and Pasternak is telling him how, you know, this is not going to be published and I, you know, it's, it's going to be banned. And Sergio doesn't really understand exactly what he's telling him. But Pasternak goes back in his DACA. He comes out with the manuscripts and gives it to him. He mm. says, you know, here you go. And he says his famous quote, yeah. uh, you know, hereby invited to my execution. Oh. And at the time, <laughs> D'Angelo thinks he's just joking. He doesn't, he doesn't really know the background of what's going on. But he takes the manuscript and within days, he he takes it across the border and he takes it um, into East Berlin, into West Berlin, where uh, Feltrinelli flies in and takes the manuscript from him. Hmm. <laughs> and so and it's really fascinating. Unfortunately, Sergio D'Angelo um, has a self-published account of all of these events, um, which has been documented in many books. But um, it's no longer online now, as, as I can find it. But his own, you know. A series of events is he just was kind of thinking this is a great book this is a great find for my you know for the Italians and he didn't I don't think he knew what he was smuggling out yeah and, and Pasternak <laughs> I mean where was Pasternak's thinking in this it almost I mean it, it it doesn't seem like he was saying this is important to get this out because it will help topple the regime more than 
this is my life's work and I want it to be read and I'm willing to sacrifice whatever it takes. Uh, but I, I don't want this to, to die in my, in my drawer. Is that, yes, is that absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't believe Pastor Neck had any political intentions with his book other than for it to be read. Right. And this was, he was very much concerned with his legacy, I think, yeah. um, you know, and he, thought this was his masterpiece, he wanted it to be read. And he was willing to die for that. And one thing we didn't mention is his family was friends with Tolstoy. Yes. So he's like, he's part of this Russian literature, this Russian novel tradition. And you can imagine that he felt like uh, if he viewed his work as being in that kind of category, he thought, would you deprive the world of uh, Crime and Punishment or uh, Anna Karenina? And, you know, this mm -hmm. is... Um, he probably had a sense of his own place in literary history. Absolutely. I think he he wanted to be placed among the greats mm -hmm. and, and felt that he would be. And yes, it, it's interesting. His his family was friends with Tolstoy when Boris was a little boy. Um, he met Tolstoy, came over to their house and they would have uh, his father um, would paint, had has painted Tolstoy. And I actually got to see that painting in person um, of a portrait of him and so he was basically, you know, sitting on the floor while Tolstoy was talking to his parents. And so he he has this tradition in his head. He's been elevated to great heights already. And he thinks uh, this novel is something to solidify him in history. Right. And I think he, you know, at, at the time thought that I'm going to give this to the Italians. He also gave, you know, a copy of the manuscript to his his family. He was living in England. He, he kind of was spreading it around. Mm. It wasn't. But the Italians were the ones to get it to the world. Yeah. Okay. So they published published a version in Italian, and they sold the mm -hmm. rights to eighteen different languages. And eventually, this would wind up in in Pasternak winning the Nobel Prize for Literature. But before yeah. that, the CIA gets involved. So yeah. <laughs> what were they <laughs> hoping to do? The CIA uh, starts hearing word about this novel that the Italians have. That's looking like it's going to be published um, and it's published in November of 1957. And I start reading uh, there's you know, memos dating back to, you know, this this novel's coming out. It seems like it's going to be subversive. It's going to look really bad for the Soviets because they're banning one of their most famous living writers. How right. can you capitalize on this? Yeah. And I, I want to <laughs> I'm sorry to cut you off. Uh, no. I want to pause here because you mentioned the memos. And that was going to be one of my questions is. How do we, what kind of facts did you have to work with? Are these files open? Is it, do we know the whole story of what was going on at the CIA? Yes, that was um, one of my initial inspirations is these memos were released in 2014. Mm. Um, thanks to Peter Finn and Petra Cuve, Peter Finn at the Washington Post had done a FOIA request for these, these documents to be released and they finally did release them. And everyone can read them on CIA.gov if ah, they so align. Right. <laughs> They're still up. And there's about 99 of them. And they are heavily redacted. So hmm. you get the idea of the goals and intention and the actual missions to mm -hmm. smuggle Dr. Zhivago back into the Soviet Union. But the names and some of the details have been redacted from history. So it was it was when I was reading those documents and and kind of thinking about who these people were that were involved in this almost stranger than fiction, real life CIA mission yeah. um, that I started thinking about, you know, fictionalizing it. 
So that was the goal of the CIA was let's have this book that's becoming famous all over Europe and and is winning prizes and looks like it's the the great Russian novel. It was suppressed by the Soviets. Let's embarrass the Soviets uh, for suppressing it and let's reintroduce it back into Russia and and let the people read it. Yes. Uh, so the the goal was to smuggle this banned book back behind the Iron Curtain where everyone was just clamoring to read it and, you know, read it and see for themselves that this, you know, masterpiece was banned and why was this kept from them? And is this, you know, it being not so over the top (laughs) subversive um, thinking about why it was kept from them. And so that was the goal. And it was a bit of a publicity uh, or like a bad PR for the Soviet Union in general throughout the world. To, to look bad, yeah. um, keeping this from them, which, you know, the, the CIA had their hands in every form of media at the time, radio, newspapers, reviews, the Paris Review. And so they were, you know, kind of ramping up the the the, the hype around this banned book. Right, because they would say at the time, you know, we're a government of the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the critics would say, actually, you have become a totalitarian state. And so mm-hmm. a book that they have banned that people read for themselves and say, well, what was so bad about this? In fact, isn't this celebrating, you know, the the, the Russian people? Uh, it would contradict everything that they were trying to present as their public image. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that was the goal. And I think they were pretty successful um, with accomplishing that goal. Yeah. So did because... they have a... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No. Uh, I mean, this was part of the CIA's larger books program, um, which was in operation for decades. And they smuggled books like Animal Farm, (laughs) you know, all all kinds of forms of pamphlets and literature um, back by the Iron Curtain, tens of thousands of pieces of literature. Um, But Zhivago was definitely, I think, their biggest win and and the most uh, I would I think the the goal was met with that book. Yeah. Now, did they have a copy in Russian? Did they get it from Feltrinelli or... So it is still unknown how the CIA got it. Uh Um, Many people speculate, and and I think this is probably what happened, that they got it from British intelligence, Mm. uh, the Russian copy. And I think that's what Peter Finn in his nonfiction book, um, The Zhivago Affair, um, which is a a very good book if anyone wants to read more about this uh, mission. Um, I think that's what he speculates, that it was MI6 that gave it to the CIA. Right. Okay. But there was also like rumors that, you know, MI6 uh, made an emergency stop of Feltrinelli's private plane and uh, went on a plane and photographed the book and all this <laughs> stuff. But that, that's, uh, I don't know if that happened or not, but it would be interesting if it did. Right. right. Okay. So let's, let's turn to your novel. But one last thing before we do, let's um, finish up the story with Pasternak. He, he had to renounce the Nobel Prize and the authorities were threatening to punish Olga for mm-hmm. the book coming out. What happened to Boris and Olga? So it really, you know, the book is out. The CIA is smuggling it back into the Soviet Union. He wins the Nobel Prize, which for a man like Boris Pasternak, I think it it was one of the the greatest honors of his life. And he accepts it immediately. But within a week, due to pressure um, from the state, everything from protests being held against him to newspapers calling him um, a Judas and other like Mm. 
know, just really like slurs of his Jewish heritage and things like that. Um, he was pressured to turn it down. And he they were threatening both him and Olga with being thrown out of the country, um, which to Boris, it would be a uh, fate worse than death. Yeah. Um, wanted to live and die on Russian soil. Right. And so, you know, all of this took its toll. He had to renounce the prize and it really took a toll on his life. And, you know, just a few years later, his health declined greatly. He Mm. was, he was a man that was always known to look 20 years younger, very handsome, very strong. And due to all of this, his health declined greatly and he passed away in 1960. Mm. And shortly after, within months of his passing, um, Olga was rearrested and sent to the gulag, uh, charged with um, accepting foreign uh, royalties from Dr. Zhivago. Mm. Um, so they, they sentenced her and her daughter to mm. the gulag. And so they they served a short sentence there again, even after Pasternak died. And they did that just out of embarrassment or just to just to to set an example and to say this is what happens when you cross the state. Yeah, I think it was a mixture of that, but also wanting to paint Olga as someone. uh, I think they they knew that in the in the future, Pasternak, this was going to look worse on them. And they wanted to paint Olga Mm. as someone who was using Pasternak and manipulating him and spying and all, oh, and all of these things. Right. And so I finally sentencing her to the gulag was, was a way to kind of continuing to, to ease the pressure off of them and put it onto someone else. Right. Okay. So let's turn to your novel where there are a couple of stories that run in parallel. So let's talk about what's happening in Russia and what's happening in America, sort of the two separate strands here. Yeah, so in my novel, The Secrets We Kept, I have back and forth between the East and the West. And in the West, I chose to tell the story primarily from women's voices. First voice of the novel, which came to me while I was reading those memos on the CIA's website, is the voice of a collective group of CIA typists. And it, it does seem like it, it, the voice kind of came out of the blue for me. And I was thinking about these memos and I was thinking about all of these redactions. And then I was thinking, like, who typed these memos? They would know all of these secrets. They yeah. would they would know the secrets of all the secret keepers. And I started researching. And this is one of those tangents. If you're you know doing a historical novel that you maybe used to procrastinate and you're like, I'm going to go down this other random road. But sometimes it really pays off because... I started researching the women typists of the CIA and what their lives were like and what kind of information they would have and and how some of them were used for other things, um, which I I go on to explore in the novel. So the first voice of the novel is this group of CIA typists who serve as almost a Greek chorus narrating the events of the CIA's mission, um, which was called A.E. Dinosaur. That was the code name to smuggle Dr. Zhivago into the Soviet Union. Right. And also in the West, I as I started doing more and more research about the early women of the CIA, I came across a few roles that women could play. One was being a messenger, mm. someone who would deliver packages or pick up packages, mostly around Washington, D.C., um, but also throughout the world. And so that led me to my first fictional character of Arena. And she's a young typist who's pulled out of the typing pool for for her special ability to go unnoticed. Mm. And she learns the art of the handoff at the Mayflower Hotel, which oh. uh, 
was actually a, a place where they did train <laughs> train yeah. people to do part of the handoff. <laughs> Client and, nine was there. Yes, yes. There's a lot of stuff. I, there's still stuff going on in that hotel. I yeah, bet. yeah. I'm sure um, there is. <laughs> and um, so I have this woman. She becomes involved in the mission, and another woman who I was really inspired by the women of the of World War II who worked in the OSS, mm. which was precursor yeah. to the CIA. Right. And some of these women would do absolutely heroic deeds on the front lines um, in, in intelligence works. And women like uh, Virginia Hall or Betty McIntosh really inspired my fictional character of Sally, who is this leftover from the OSS. Right. Who, after the war has ended, she's kind of trying to find her place, her foothold of where she can still be useful after the war is over. And what she determines she can keep being useful is by using her beauty to get secrets out of powerful men. Mm. So those are my main protagonists in yeah. the world. And you had some real life inspirations. Did did you find a typist that you did that have to be invented or were you able to find an actual person who would have fit the role that Irina would have played? So I, interestingly enough, so I found, you know, some, uh, a woman spy expert who led me down some books that were really help, helpful in determining, you know, who these people were. Um, like Sisterhood of Spies is a great book mm. by written by Betty McIntosh, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until the book came out that some of these real life typists started contacting me. And I got to have a conversation with one of them. She lives in California and she was a typist who went on to do other things for the CIA, very similar to Arena. And she told me that I saved her writing her memoir because I got so many of the details, wow. of the time, which was the best compliment. <laughs> and yeah. I got an email. It said like from a former typist. And I was like, oh, no, she's going to say I got it all wrong. Yeah, right. And you know, why did you write about this? But it was, it's been really nice. I had, I had drinks with her when I was in California on my book tour, which right. was so great. Wow. Um, but yeah, a lot of these, the, a lot of the people um, have either kind of faded into the background or have passed away uh, by this time. But hopefully more of these stories will come out because I think there has been a rise in people being interested in stories like about Virginia Hall um, mm-hmm. in that in, in other other spies that played such a great role during this time. Yeah. And then in Russia, you're following uh, Boris and Olga. Yeah. So in, in the east part of my novel, I'm primarily following Olga. Um, and also I dip into Sergio D'Angelo and Boris mm. Pasternak's point of view as well. And so it, it weaves, it kind of follows the, where the book is being written and and what's happening with the book on the East, as well as the aftermath of what goes on after it's smuggled out and the CIA gets its hands on it. And Olga was really fascinating to research because she had published her own autobiography of her time with Boris Pasternak, which is called A Captive of Time. And it was really interesting to use some of those real life um, conversations and weave it into a fictional landscape and, and really try to be in touch with, you know, what she might've been feeling during that time. Right. So aside from just the action and, and the thriller aspects of this, what were you hoping to explore in your book? Is it about love and romance or patriotism or what themes are you getting at here? I think it's a mix of 
A few things. I um, my background. I worked in Washington D.C. for a number of years as a political campaign consultant. Mm-hmm. And I was. I call myself a, a propagandist because I was writing ad copy um, and stump speeches for politicians. Right. And I've always been fascinated with how words have ability, or the certain words, or the arrangement of words, have the ability to change people's hearts and minds. And I also think that's why I've been interested in exploring how this book of Dr. Zhivago was seen to be a weapon. You know, this this wasn't right. just something Horace wrote. They they use it as a weapon. And that fact was so fascinating to me and something that I wanted to explore of the power of literature. And could literature um, be used in this way that seems so foreign to us now, but at the time it was seen as something that could change more people's hearts and minds than any other form of media. And yeah. that fascinating for me to to kind of play out as one of the major themes of, you know, our books powerful and our books um, could books change the world. But I was also having fun with playing with the themes of love and, and freedom as well, because the story in the West, I talk about a relationship between arena and Sally, um, which during the 1950s could have been, um, you know, something to cost their their lives at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought it was interesting where we have the juxtaposition of the CIA trying to use a book to show that the Soviet citizens aren't as free as they think. At the same time, we have, you know, the U.S. government um, firing its own employees and persecuting its own citizens um, because of, you know, who they choose to love. And Mm. so there is that kind of, you know, hypocrisy there. So I was that um as well and seeing what does freedom mean what does democracy mean and then i think just playing with the themes of dr Zhivago and showing you know how history unspools and like Mm. looking at history how it reflects in the present moment is something i'm still very much interested in right and the generations and the way that the lessons learned in one generation cascades through to the next yes yes Okay, I have a surprise bonus question for you. Ooh. <laughs> all right, all right, are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> okay. After giving a book reading in Eastern Europe, you receive a knock on your hotel door. It's a white-haired but spry man with a Russian accent. He says that years ago he worked for the KGB and was permitted to read some files that very few people have ever read. He says they document the truth about Pasternak and Olga, and it's completely different from the one the world has come to believe. It's not a pretty story, he says, but it's the truth. He offers to let you read those papers if you travel with him to Moscow. And there's a a flight waiting. (laughs) He strikes you as more of a professor type than a dangerous agent, but of course you can't be sure. And even setting aside the risk, you wonder if learning the truth about Pasternak might disturb some myths that are better left alone. On the Ooh. other hand, this is a writer's chance of a lifetime, and your curiosity is aroused. <gasps> Do you get on the plane? I think that I would want to get on the plane. <laughs> I also think my husband would drag me by the feet to not allow me to do this. And I oh should say God. that you told me before we started here, you have a three-month-old. That, yeah. So th- uh, I, a couple months ago, I probably would have been on the plane. But now, and also in this, you know, I, I mean, it yep. is interesting. I have friends that are um, Russian or Russian descent, and 
they are just like, yeah, if, if, because my book was, you know, the, it's going to be translated into Russian. They're like, don't go, don't go, <laughs> don't <Yeah>. go. <laughs> I, I still have that. Maybe just, yeah, I think maybe I would be, my interest would be peaked and in, in seeing if I could work it out somehow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and your inspiration could be the characters in your own book who had to accept some danger in service of a higher calling. Yeah, but on the other hand, I think I might be done with uh, Dr. Zhivago for a while. All right. <laughs> so I'm trying to get on my next. Uh, my yeah, if the if the uh, if the surprise if I had made the subject a different a whole different scenario a literary scenario oh, that you cool. could sink your teeth into, uh, maybe I would have had better luck enticing you to get on the plane. Yeah, that that actually might work because. <laughs> It's it seems it's it is hard when you're working on a, a new novel, but you keep getting pulled back into the the old novel. Right, <laughs> it won't let you go. Okay, well, the book is called "The Secrets We Kept," available everywhere and coming out in paperback. Laura Prescott, thank you for joining me on the history of literature. Thank you so much for having me. There we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Boris Pasternak and to Olga and, of course, to Lara Prescott, who brought us this story today. Her book is called The Secrets We Kept, and it's coming out in paperback this week, available at many fine bookstores. My thanks also to our listeners, Mary in Ontario and Alex, the fan mail writer, so thoughtful and warm. Both of them, they really lifted my spirits. I hope your spirits are lifted, and if not, I hope you can find some way to lift them. Or maybe that you have someone around you to help lift them. Spirit lifters. Why isn't that a job? You can be a garbage collector, or a ticket taker, or a ghost buster, but good luck trying to get a job as a spirit lifter. Well, maybe it's not a job, but a calling. Maybe it's something we all need to do for our fellow spirits. Lift them whenever we can. Maybe we should do that not for money, but because it's good for the world and because it's good for us too. So go lift a few spirits, people. Put that shovel down. You don't need a pitchfork for this kind of lifting. Maybe just a smile or a hug or a kind word or a gentle expression at just the right time. Be there for someone. See how they're doing. See what they need. Listen and lift. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and see you next time. <laughs>